Welcome to Murder and Mimosas, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories with the mimosas in hand. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder Mimosas. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. Today we're going to cover a case that has many twists and turns going on. So let's start off talking about Angie Dodge. She was just 18 years old when she moved out of her parents' home, out on her own, just after high school graduation. She was working at a hair salon and was able to use her income there to get her own little quaint apartment, giving her her own space and her own independence, which I think at 18, we all kind of wanted. However, June 13th, 1996, Angie did not make it into work at the salon. Two of her coworkers and friends were instantly concerned because this was very out of character for Angie. So the two women drove over to Angie's place to check in on her and make sure she was okay. They, however, were not at all prepared for what they were about to walk in on. Angie was stabbed and found dead in her room, and the whole room is covered in blood. Angie, though, is a fighter, and she didn't go down without a fight. There's a clear sign of a struggle, but the one odd thing was there didn't seem to be any signs of forced entry. Did the police think she left the door unlocked or that Angie possibly knew the person? Well, her apartment was in Idaho Falls, and she's a young single girl living on her own, so police suspected it was someone she knew possibly let in, but there's no way to know for sure. The investigators immediately went to work on the scene. They took DNA samples, and they're they're luckily able to get what they called, quote, pristine samples on Angie's body herself of the attacker. So they began taking the samples of DNA from local men, and, um, For whatever reason, I couldn't figure out what made the police decide this, but they were under the assumption that there were multiple attackers that took part in this crime. Okay, and you also said they took DNA from local men. Like, was there any rhyme or reason to that, or just... Not that I could find, and um, they kind of got hit in the face because as they kept going, I mean, none of these local men had positive DNA hits. So they're testing them. I don't know if these were convicted or if they had any, you know. Sex offenders. Right. I'm sure that there was a wrong reason, but they just called them local men everywhere I saw it. Um, But none of them were positive DNA matches for the DNA they got at the scene. So we have that problem. We also have the problem that none of the detectives at the Idaho Falls police were equipped with experience for a homicide of this magnitude. It's a small town. Um, 
you know, this isn't something that they're used to dealing with. So the case seemed to be on its way to being a cold case. That is until the previous year, not previous, the following year. <laughs> I was going to say, what? We're about to time travel. <laughs> until since the following year of 1997, when a man in Nevada is arrested for the rape of a woman. How far away from Idaho Falls is that? I'm not 100% sure because I couldn't find, like, the exact town in Nevada. Um, But it must have been fairly close because he and his friend Christopher Tapp were quickly under suspicion for Angie's attack. So if you recall, the police believe that the attack on Angie was done by more than one perp. Well, they have DNA. Did it match Tap or his friend? Well, no, actually. But that doesn't really deter the police at all. They quickly come to the conclusion that it just means there was also a third individual who was part of the attack, and the DNA they got belonged to that individual. But Tap and his friend definitely still had to be a part of this in their head. What? Yeah. So with their sights set on Christopher Tap, the police interrogated him for hours, over a hundred hours total in a period of three weeks. So he also took seven polygraph tests. Of course, all of this is going to take a major toll on anyone. And to make matters worse, police are threatening him with the death penalty. They're asking questions in a way that's very leading. And I'm sure at this point, Tap is just exhausted. Um, and with all of these factors, Tap would eventually break down and he confesses. But the kicker is that during this confession, Tap would tell a total of six different and conflicting stories. We have heard this before. This is eerily similar to the confession coerced in the West Memphis Three case. Yes, and much like the case of the West Memphis Three, the police arrested Tap based on his confession of rape and murder of Angie, despite the fact that it's very conflicting. So in May of 1998, Tapp pleaded not guilty, and he does so on the basis of a coerced confession. The judge, though, denied that and ruled that the confession was admissible. To make matters worse, a witness was put on the stand during the trial, and she claimed she heard Tapp bragging about committing this murder. This later... This witness would later, though, recant claiming her statement and would say that she was pressured by police. Oh, my gosh. This also sounds very similar to the West Memphis Three case. Yes, there are some parallels for sure. Despite that, the witness recanted. Tap was found guilty on all charges, and he was given 30 years to life in prison. I hope this isn't where the story ends, because I could be wrong, but this man sounds completely innocent. Well, this is not where it ended for Angie's mother, Carol Dodge. Despite a conviction, she still had questions that lingered. Like, who left the DNA? So, Carol decided she'd started doing her own investigation and started canvassing the streets, handing out flyers, putting up a $5,000 reward in exchange for information. In the early 2010s, Carol got a computer as a gift, and she was able to use this to deepen her research. As all of us true crime fans (laughs) know, you can go down some major rabbit holes. 
So through her research, she was able to get in contact with a Dr. Greg Hampikin, who is a forensic DNA specialist, and he also founded the Idaho Innocence Project. Was he willing to help? Surprisingly enough, he had already been contacted by Tap from prison before Carol even found him. So Hampikin and his team, they dissected the confession that Tap gave and clearly found signs of coercion. So Tap tried to say that in court before, so did it make any difference for him now? To some degree, yes. Um, because of this, he was cleared of the rape charge, but he was still on the hook for the murder. This did reduce his sentence to a minimum sentence of 20 years, so he got some time knocked off. This means that in 2017, he was released from prison. But this wasn't good enough for Carol, though, and Dr. Hapigan, together, the two, continued to push for a DNA familial profile to find out who left this DNA at Angie's crime scene, because we know it doesn't match Tap. Oddly enough, the police eventually agreed with the two's plan to upload the DNA onto Ancestry.com. So did they have any luck with that? They were able to find a fairly close match to a filmmaker in New Orleans who, oddly enough, had at one point made a short film about the murder of a young woman. That is oddly strange, but you said he was a familiar match, right? Not an exact match. Right. And in 2015, they tested this New Orleans man's DNA, and he didn't match. So in 2018, they decided to try a new attempt with Jed Match, which we've when Dr. Moxie yes. went over Jed Match a lot, um, and this time they had a lot more success. They were able to work with the renowned Cece Moore, who we've talked about in many episodes, and they built a profile. Of course, in talking to Moxie, we've learned that this isn't a quick process, okay? It's months of research. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of people's work. But they did finally land on a possible suspect. His name is Brian Drips, and he had been the neighbor across the street from Angie the time she was killed. Even though someone has been locked up for this crime, did the police take this lead seriously at all? Surprisingly enough, the police do entertain the idea, and they started tailing drips and were able to get one of the cigarette butts he threw out. With that, they were able to test the DNA on it against the DNA from Angie's crime scene, and it was a match. So they brought drips in for questioning, and... He confessed to the rape and the murder of Angie, and a bit of a whammy to the police informed that this was a solo act. He did not have any accomplices. No one else was involved. This was him and him alone. So in February of 2001, he pleaded guilty and was given 20 years to life in prison. None of them got to have special events with Angie. None of them got to have another 23 years of days with her. So for those 23 years, he had a truth he refused to reveal. 25 years is a long time to wait for some type of closure on such a crime, on such a, uh, a brutal crime. Uh, again, you look at crimes like this, and it's impossible to quantify how much damage has been caused. Uh, and it spread, it spread wide. Drips it. Where does that leave Tap? Well, after Drips was arrested, Tap's attorney started the work to get him exonerated for Angie's murder. 
Can you guess who spearheaded this charge? Heather Vanjie. Yes. Carol is indeed the wonderful woman who spearheaded it. In July of 2019, Tap is fully exonerated. His name's clear again. Carol even talks about how much it makes her heart happy that his mother gets her son back uh, knowing the truth. And Tap even at one point refers to Angie or Angie's mother, Carol, as a second mother to him. Um, so Carol decided to, from there, begin a fundraiser to raise funds to help solve the exponentially large number of cold cases in the U.S. Her project is called Five for Hope, and we will link it into our show notes, and we highly encourage considering to donate, donate, not donuts, donate. Donuts sound good there. Yes. <laughs> donate the price of what you'd spend on donuts to Five for Hope. Okay. There you go. See? Okay, so I don't remember the other guy's name, but there was another guy at the beginning. So what happened to him? Okay, um, you don't know his name because I never said it because I never found it. He's constantly just referred to as like Tap's friend. And he kind of disappears. Once they set their sight on Tap's, I can't find anything else about him, which is really hard to without a name. Um, so I assume he was at least, you know, brought up in charges for the rape that he was, you know, suspected of in Nevada. But, again, they don't give me his name in any of the stuff I can find. And so it's hard to figure out what happened. But, it, obviously, he wasn't So maybe he got, a, he got an attorney or something and kept the police off of him from browbeating him. Like maybe. did him. They did taps. I don't know. There's no telling. I did want to say, because I don't think I mentioned it, um, when Drips confessed, he, you know, motive is a weird thing. We want to know the motive, even though we know that no real motive can make up for why someone would do a crime like this. Um, according to Drips, he was both drunk and high when he broke into Angie's apartment and raped and killed her. Um, so I don't even know that they really knew each other from what it sounds like. And... He went on for two decades holding the secret and letting another person spend two decades in prison for a crime that he knows they didn't commit. So that kind of sounds odd to just commit this one rape and murder. I'm assuming with his DNA there was no other hits of other rapes or murders. Not that I could find, um, you know, when they put it in. They did the familial thing, and they got his DNA off the cigarette. But my guess is they run it through CODIS, right? I would assume so. But that just seems very odd to just have that one rape and murder and never do it again. I don't know. Maybe maybe the fear of getting caught always was right there, so he never did it again. You know, he got away with it once. Maybe he didn't want to test luck. Because it, I mean, it was brutal. Yeah. I don't know. I would think if you went that many years and you didn't get caught, you would be like, oh, I got this down. But, mm-hmm. but times did change and things did progress and harder to get away with crimes. Mm-hmm. But that is the just up and down story of Angie uh, Dodge. And, you know, I say Angie Dodge is a victim, but also Christopher Taps, he's a victim he in this too. Um, so 
you know, in a way, Drips really, he got two victims out of that, that one crime, which is a really sad thought. But tell us what you think. Um, what are your thoughts about this one? We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.